Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. The small epistle written in a Roman prison in the year, around the year A.D. 67, was the Apostle Paul's last scriptural writing. Tradition straight, uh, states that shortly after this letter, Paul was martyred at the hands of Nero. And this short epistle then serves as a sort of a last will concerning the gospel ministry. As Paul passes the gospel baton, on to the next leg of Christianity, that being the post-apostolic Christianity. So I trust we'll all learn much from the text for this evening. And once again, we are in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He's mentioned three times in Scripture. In Colossians, he's in a list of workers sending greetings. In Philemon, he is called a fellow laborer with the Apostle Paul. However, when we get to the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry, we see that this one-time laborer, as well as companion, has now taken on a different adjective. And that adjective is one of a deserter. And this final reference has forever flavored how individuals view the man Demas. Paul makes it clear that Demas had abandoned Paul. And he had abandoned also the gospel ministry. And I'm sure you know the reason for this abandonment. It was not for health reasons. It was not even for self-preservation. But rather, as I'm sure you know, Demas walked away from the Apostle Paul and the ministry because he loved this present world. Now, when we see instances of people like Demas in Scripture, when we see instances of people like Demas in our culture, when we see instances of Demas maybe even in some of the pews around us, the typical response is one of apprehension. At least that's what happens in my heart and in my life. And the reason for that is because I know the depravity of my own heart. I know how easily I am wooed away from God. I know the strength of my flesh. I know the strength of the world and the culture around me. And I know the strength of the devil. And so when we hear a story about Demas, Demas becomes a cautionary tale for us. And it brings about humility and meekness. Why? Knowing that we all have failed. And we all could fail at any moment. Can I say this reality, no doubt, was one of the reasons why Paul desires that the reality of Demas, that it may not be repeated in the life of another fellow servant of his, namely Timothy. And so this motivated Paul to write to his son in the faith. And he had multiple reasons, but one of them was to desire to see him so that he could impart greater instruction and greater discipleship that would be a safeguard, if you will, to his brother, beloved son in the faith. Can I say, we are beneficiaries of this teaching as we have in our hands the letter of 2 Timothy. And I believe the temptation to apostasy is just as real today as it was back then. 
And likewise, the remedy to falling away is the same tonight as it was then. So I trust our passage will be a blessing as again, we are in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And the first part of this chapter really addresses the realities of apostasy around us. Paul is laying out what is taking place or what will take place in the end days or the last days. And it's a very popular chapter. We know you may have even memorized some of this chapter. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 says, begins, This know also that in last days perilous times shall come. For men will be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. If that's not enough, he continues verse 3, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, uh, incontinent or no self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. These, having a form of godliness, they deny the power thereof. I don't know about you, but if you look at our culture and you look, even just to turn on the television for about five minutes, or if you were to drive down the road and you see the billboards, or if you're on your phone for very long, you have to be very careful because all around us are some of these individuals. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. What is Paul's instruction at the end of verse 4? From such, turn away. What else is true of them? Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They think they know, but they really don't. Paul then gives two examples, Janus and Jambres, and we don't know much about them. But they withstood Moses, verse 8. So do these also resist the truth. They are men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. Here's their end. They shall proceed no further, for their folly was manifest unto all men. I think sometimes we have people in our culture who say, you can't judge me. And really, to be honest, it's easy. We don't really even have to judge them. We just have to watch them. Because they and their their foolishness, and as this list lays out, it is manifest. Their folly is manifest towards all men. But, how should we respond? We know that that's going to be our culture. We know that's what's happening around us. Well, what are we to do? And what we have for our text this evening, evening verses 10 down through verse 17, we now have the Apostle Paul's instruction to his son in the faith on how to confront that apostasy and how to prevent it from happening in his own life. Now, one of the realities of a believer is that they will endure to the end. God's grace is sufficient to help us to endure. However, throughout the New Testament, we see over and over again the personal responsibility that we have to endure. The instructions given to us to how to endure. Uh, The responsibility is partly ours that we are called to remain. We are called to endure. We'll talk a little bit more about what this is in a second. But can I say the solution to that reality or that command is simple. Now notice I said it's simple. I didn't say it's easy. (laughs) But I say, but it's simple. 
So let's get started. What is the reality or what are some of the things that we need to do in order to combat this apostasy that is all around us? Again, our text picks up in verse 10. We're going to read the first three verses and understand that there are some things that we must know in order to be steadfast in the faith. So look at verse 10. We have that great contrasting word, but thou. So after talking about these apostates, now Paul comes to Timothy and he says, but thou. Now Timothy, Timothy, thou hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of life. My purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my charity, or my love, my patience. Can I say, first off, we need to know some things. Specifically, we need to know what stand, uh, steadfastness in the faith looks like. And for Paul, what did he do? He was writing to his son in the faith, and he says, just look at my life. You know my life. You know my ministry. You know how I have finished my course, is what he says later on in uh, the book of 2 Timothy. And really, can I say, Timothy knew Paul. Uh, he was with Paul often. Paul was invested in him, and Timothy understood that reality. He saw an example lived out in front of him. Again, verse 10, you have known my doctrine. That's the teaching. You, Paul, or Timothy knew what Paul was about when he went into a new city. He knew the process. He knew that Paul was about the gospel and sharing the gospel. He also knew Paul's manner of life, how Paul was faithful and how he just continued in some very, very difficult circumstances. Timothy also knew Paul's heart and his motives. He also knew Paul's faith. It was the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. He also saw the long-suffering, the love with which Paul ministered, and then that great patience as Paul went through so many difficulties. Can I say, we at the same, if we are to safeguard or be steadfast in the faith, it is good for us to look and to see other examples of that faithfulness. I know when I graduated from seminary and you know I was getting ready to take my, uh, my first uh, ministry responsibilities, I remember thinking as I graduated, you know what, I'm going to turn the world upside down. I'm just going to, it's going to be great. We're going we're gonna to accomplish so much. And I went to a small ministry in south of Minneapolis, south of St. Paul, Minnesota. And one of the things that I learned very quickly is often the ministry isn't so glamorous, but it is a day-in, day-out faithful plotting. And oh, we can still have great optimism in the gospel. And we can have great optimism in the God of the gospel, and we should. But oftentimes, the thing that God calls us to do is to just be faithful. And I remember reading a little article that was given to me as a young man, and it, the title was The Glory of Plotting. And that means just faithfully walking. It's not flashy, but it is faithful. And Timothy knew that about Paul. Timothy, oh, he saw the good stuff. Can I say that? He saw all the amazing things God did. 
But can I also say Timothy was there to see the negative things as well? You pick up in verse 11. Verse 10 sounds pretty good so far, but then you see verse 11. Persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. If you remember at Lystra, he was, he was uh, stoned to the point of death. And then what persecutions I endured. Paul or Timothy knew all of those things. And can I say, sometimes we may be called to suffer so that someone else can see that as well and see how we suffer and see how we remain faithful in that. And so God can use the positives in the life of someone else, but God can also use the negatives to bring about steadfastness in the faith. And so, can I say, we need to know what a good example of faithfulness is. Timothy was there through the good and the bad. And Paul calls him to remember those things, to recall those things, to go back and remember and to know what a good example is. But then with that, can I also say, in order to be steadfast in the faith, not only should we know what a good example is and have a good example ahead of us, but also we should not be caught off guard by opposition. I know some who, when they have that opposition, they faint or they fade away or they pull back. I think in the life of the Apostle Paul, one example of that would be John Mark. Now, what's amazing about John Mark is even later on in 2 Timothy, John Mark comes back and he is profitable for the ministry. But early on, John Mark pulled back. He went home. He left Timothy, or he left Paul, excuse me. And so that was, a, that was a struggle for the Apostle Paul for a little bit. But here's the wonderful thing. He was able to see what happened to endure that persecution, and then he was able to return. And so John Mark is a great example of one who maybe at first would get a little nervous, kind of pulled back, and then endured and was profitable. And so we have verse 12 laid out that we must not be caught off guard by persecution. Verse 12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus. That means Timothy. That means the church in Ephesus. That means the church in, Gra in Birmingham, Michigan, Grace Baptist Church. Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus. Here's those next few words. They shall suffer persecution. If you desire to live a godly life, you will sooner rather than later experience opposition. It's promised. One of my uh, pastor's friends of mine would say, cheer up, it's on its way. Persecution is coming. So don't get caught off guard by it. Remember the, uh, the area or the situation, the setting wherewith we are called to minister. These are people in verses 1 through 9 that are not nice people. And there will be times that you will face great persecution. Can I say opposition then is normal? Persecution is the norm. Also, can I point out that America has been the exception, not the norm? Don't be surprised if the norm returns even here in America. One of the things that my uh, teachers used to say is you need to read the Fox's Book of Martyrs. You need to see what other believers have gone through. 
You need to see and you need to grapple with those moments as believers were burned at the stake and they had to decide, were they going to remain faithful or were they going to recant of their faith? Those moments, though difficult to navigate, are good for us. And oftentimes I would close the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and I would sit there and say, I don't think I could do that, Lord. And it's in that moment when we are in complete and utter trust for our steadfastness in God, not in ourselves, that that's exactly where God wants us to be. And so Paul writes and says, don't be caught off guard by this persecution, Timothy. You should expect it. This is the norm. Where does this persecution come from? Is it just simply opposition, just difficulty of life? But no, it actually has, he names it, it is from, verse 13, evil men and seducers. And those individuals shall wax worse and worse. And what is their goal? Their goal is to deceive, and then on top of that, they are deceived. And so it's a circle of deception, a circle of evil. So opposition is normal. Opposition comes from evil. Can I say, just like Jesus said to Peter, that the devil would love nothing more than to sift him like wheat, or in other words, beat him into a pulp, or into a, almost like a flower. The devil would love nothing more than to do the same to us. And there is evil in the world, and we do need to pay attention to that, and we do need to name it, mark it, and as Paul said, avoid it. So persecution source is very clear. It is evil. What is persecution's goal? As I mentioned, it is deception and the dismantling of the gospel. That is their goal. And let's think a little bit even about the, the testimony of the Apostle Paul when he was, when he, before he got saved. His goal was to stamp out Christianity by any means necessary. That is what the goal of this persecution is. So with that in mind, as he lays out what we are to know, can I say, nobody likes this opposition. We all desire to be liked, but I wonder how long has it been since you have felt the sting of persecution for your walk with Christ? Do you have an example ahead of you that is being faithful? Let me be clear, this isn't persecution for something like a political stance. This isn't opposition because of your personal preferences, but this is persecution because you name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I wonder, how long has it been since someone has hated you simply because you love and want to serve Jesus? For far too long, I believe we've espoused a faith that has cost us little. So that when the faith, our faith, is tested, we often cave or we're not even sure what to do. And soon we find ourselves at least tempted, like Demas, to walk away from that faith. Paul wants Timothy to be ready for that opposition, so he warns Timothy. He says, be ready. What about us? Can I say, this month, so I'm, I, I have a birthday this month, June. I love the month of June, but can I say, as of recently, our culture has adopted the month of June for another purpose, and that is to show pride in sin. 
actions that God lays out in his word very clearly that are wrong. And so in this case, what are, how are we to respond? Don't be surprised if we face conversations, rants, hate-filled speech. Why? Because these are the people that we are surrounded by. These are the last days that the Lord has allowed us to live. And for such a time as this, similar to Esther, we are now called to navigate these things. How should we live? First off, we should know. We must know some things in order to be steadfast in the faith. But now we must do some things. Not only should we know, but we also should do some things. What specifically should we do? And that's where we pick up verse 14 down to verse 17. First off, we must be loyal to the truth. Verse 14 says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We'll stop there for right now, but we first must be loyal to the truth. You have that word there. It says we must continue in the things we've learned. That word continue is the word meno, which means to remain. This is a present active imperative. It's an ongoing day in, day out choice. Can I say, here's the wonderful thing. Sometimes when we think about the uh, Christianity and remaining steadfast in the faith, sometimes we think it's, uh, it's very, it is difficult, but it's very, uh, we have to, in some cases, make the progress ourselves. But this word, this Greek word, is to remain. It means we're just to stand. The book of Ephesians writes very clearly that we are to stand, and having done all to stand, stand. And how do we do that? We put on the whole armor of God. Sometimes we think we have to go out and we have to vanquish the foes and we have to do all. Well, in reality, what God calls us to do is to just remain, to stand, to stand firm. We might even think, I've got to go out and I've got to save every single person. Well, we can't do that. So what do we do? We remain. We continue. We are, in one sense, stubborn in the faith. We remain. It's a day, ongoing day in and day out choice. Seldom do individuals wake up and think, well, today, you know, I think I'm going to walk away from the faith today. Apostasy is a very slow process, very typically. It's often very small choices that are then adding on top of one another that then eventually the person sits in the consequences of their sin and say, how far have I gone? Where did I get, how did I get here? Well, it's all those small choices that are made every day that add up. And so what is Paul saying? He's saying, Timothy, remain or continue in the things that thou hast learned. What are those things that are necessary to help us to remain in the faith? What are those things that we are to learn? Well, we have two things. The first is we need to remember. And then secondly, we need to rely. So let's look at what we are to remember. We need to remember our spiritual heritage, both the message and the messengers. And that's where Paul goes. He says, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, and then at the end, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. 
It's interesting. Paul reminds Timothy, hey, remember who you've learned these things from. I find that kind of interesting simply because if you have been in church for very long or if you have uh, accepted the Lord and been discipled, we probably all could sit and think about, I know I can think about the Sunday school teachers that I have. I've got the names running through my mind even as I speak to you. I can see their faces. I know their, I know my Awana leaders, those who discipled me and taught me what it means to know God, to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to serve Jesus. And so Paul does say that if we are to, re, to be steadfast in the faith, we do need to remember sometimes that spiritual heritage. If Paul has to tell Timothy to remember, that means that we all struggle to remember. We get distracted with the things of life, and Paul wants Timothy to remember his spiritual heritage. The process of his salvation the teaching of his salvation, and then also who was doing that teaching. In this case, it would be his mother and his grandmother. Then Paul comes alongside and then continues that growth and development. And so we need to remember our spiritual heritage. It's fascinating to me how many references we have within Scripture concerning the necessity excuse me, of remembering in the Old Testament, you have the children of Israel and the festivals, the sacrifices. We, they, are, they were called consistently to remember. Remember what I've done. Don't forget how I have brought you out of Egypt. The sacrifices all pointed to this, yes, the future, but also to remember. They were all meant to facilitate remembering God. What about the New Testament? Us as believers, what are we called to do? Well, each month, we are called to remember something. We remember the Lord's death, right? Here at Grace, we have it once a month. We remember what our Savior did. Can I say, this also is no exception. As we think about our faith, we must remember those who taught us the gospel. Do you remember your Sunday school teachers? People that taught you the Bible. How many apostasies would be avoided if we remember those who poured into us? I remember my mom used to say, hey, boys, because I had two brothers and myself. Boys, if you are about to sin and if you remember my face in your mind and it prevents you from sinning, then please remember me often. And so we are called to remember those who have poured into us. If nothing more, God did so much for us. Think about what God did for us. If God did so much for us, how could we walk away from such a love? From such a sacrifice as we consider what our Savior did? We must remember. But I will say that remembering is not as important as this last point made by Paul. This is... Not unimportant, can I put it that way? Remembering, but it's not as important as relying. Because in the next few verses, we have very popular verses, but verses that are the key, can I say the key of the keys? I don't know. This is the pivotal passage on keeping and remaining steadfast in your faith. 
We should remember, but now we also should rely on the sufficient scriptures. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. I have several passages that I love through scripture, but can I say this passage is one of my favorites. Why? Because I don't, I look at it and I see not myself, I see the sufficiency of the word. Because if I try and I, I do my best to try to keep myself in, in the grace of God, and though I have that responsibility and though I should, there are days that I just say, Lord, I can't do this. And I come humbly to the scriptures and I see what the scriptures are able to do in my life. He says we must rely on the sufficient scriptures. What are the, what are the scriptures able to do? The scriptures are sufficient, first off, and necessary to teach us what is right. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable or it works for doctrine. Doctrine, it tells us what is right. This is what is expected of us. This is who our God is. This is how we should order our life off of that reality. But what if we mess up? Can I say, Scripture not only teaches us what is right, but Scripture also teaches us and is necessary for our reproof. What is reproof? That means that God's Word teaches us what is wrong. It says, don't do these things. It tells us what to do, but then he says, don't do these other things. And through the pages of Scripture, we know what is right and we know what is wrong. But what happens if we don't follow that? What happens if we decide or we get wooed away by our flesh, the world, and the devil. We choose to sin. Can I say, Scripture is also sufficient and necessary to teach us how to make things right after we have sinned. And that's that word, correction. It literally has the idea of a setting of a bone. It's a doctor, it's a, a, a doctor term of setting the bone straight. So it grows properly. And so God's Word teaches us how to make it right. But what about tomorrow? Maybe we've had those moments of correction and we've asked the Lord to help us and we've, and we've made things right with him and with others. What about tomorrow? Well, the scriptures are sufficient and necessary also to teach us how to keep things right. And that's what you have in the instruction in righteousness. But it doesn't just stop there. The scriptures are also sufficient and necessary to bring us to maturity. Again, if we're going to be steadfast, God's word has to play a pivotal role. It has to be there. It is foundational for our faithfulness and steadfastness in the gospel and in the faith. We see that laid out in verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect. That word doesn't mean without sin, because on this side of eternity we will still struggle. But that word can be translated as mature. And then, not only is God's word able and necessary to bring us to maturity, but also the scriptures are sufficient and necessary to get us ready for a life of service to God. And that's where it finishes. We are throughly furnished unto all good works. And those two words, throughly furnished, has the idea of if you were to rent a throughly furnished apartment, that means you have all the things necessary for you to live. And so, Scripture is what we must rely on. 
and Scripture is sufficient. You know, I find it mind-boggling that believers understand the necessity of Scripture for salvation, but how quickly they seek answers to life's problems apart from Scripture. Let's think logically for a moment. Logically speaking, if God's Word declares the remedy for our sin, the biggest problem that we will ever face, wouldn't it then follow that it should be able to offer guidance on what might be lesser issues in this life? And I would say Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 has found its way into many a systematic theology textbook. And it has proved the inspiration of Scripture. And can I say, it is rightly so to be placed and included in those systematic theologies. For it does say, very clearly, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But can I submit that this passage is so much more than just a proof text of the inspiration of Scripture? Within the context, this passage declares that Scripture is all you need to grow into maturity in Christ. So then, from our study this evening, as Scripture has laid out for us, we must eschew all of these other lesser, dangerous methods and instead wholly, truly hold on to the key to faithfulness, that being Scripture. Make Scripture your guide. Study, know it, obey it, and rely on Scriptures today. So in conclusion, as we wrap this up, we must know something and we must do something. You know, COVID shut down the world. COVID was difficult for the economy, the medical community, the human body, the financial markets. All of these have had an impact. COVID has had an impact on all of these. But I believe there is a greater casualty to any of these industries. And I believe COVID has revealed within our culture and within the American church culture our spiritual weaknesses. And I believe we are at a crossroads in our country, in our culture, and even, yes, in our churches. I believe that loyalty to the things of God has largely, and I'm painting with a broad brush, so bear with me, but I believe, by and large, loyalty to the things of God has melted away. On one hand, I believe COVID had a refining impact no, no longer, longer could, could you fake, fake it. it. For, For once, it costs something to go to church. And can I say, in mass, people have walked away from the things of God. You could argue that those who walked away weren't saved anyway. And I would say, in some cases, that, were, that is true. But what about those true believers that got swept up in that wave? Like, like the Apostle, Apostle Paul, I believe, I believe that, that we, we have an older, older faithful generation, generation that's passing off the scene. And the, and the message we looked at tonight is precisely what we all need to hear. Perhaps, perhaps you are here, or perhaps, perhaps you are watching online, and you are considering walking away from the faith. Can I say you are not alone? In fact, the hashtag spiritual deconstruction has been, been trending on social media, media so much recently that it is decrying the fact that this is not a minor issue. This is a major issue. 
This, this, is, this, is, this is nothing, nothing new. new. After, After all, all, we have, have a book of the Bible written by an older faithful man encouraging his son in the faith to remain faithful. We understand that Paul would soon be put to death for his faith. He writes to Timothy in the waning moments of his life to encourage faithfulness to the gospel. And so tonight, can I encourage you with these keys as well? We saw how important it is to see examples of faithfulness, and we should desire that faithfulness and steadfastness. We also saw that we shouldn't be surprised with opposition when it comes. It will come. The devil and evil men would love nothing more than to extinguish your fire for God. So get ready for that. And then secondly, we must continue. We must remain the things we know by remembering those who have poured into us but more, more importantly, importantly, by seeking Scripture and letting Scripture be our guide and, and being in Scripture and allowing Scripture to be in us. Remember, it is the thing that is sufficient to bring you to maturity to Christ. So then, beloved, I might ask this question. How are you doing? I had to ask the same question myself. What is guiding your decision-making today? Now, if now, if you're, you're here, here today, today and you've never, never trusted, trusted Christ, Christ, all of these things would seem very foreign to you. And, and you can't will yourself enough, you can't turn over enough leaves to try to stay close to God. It won't work. You have to have faith in Christ and Christ alone. But for those of us who have accepted Christ, are you safeguarding your steadfastness? For the believer, we must remain steadfast in the faith. And using this passage, I trust that we will be able to stand and be faithful until the day we stand before our Savior. And he says to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Would you bow together in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these, these poignant words, these words of warning, these words of instruction. And Lord, I don't know the spiritual temperature or the difficulties of those uh, who are sitting in front of me. You do. But Lord, I ask that you would use your word, that you would use your sufficient word to safeguard your children. You would put a hedge of protection around their minds. You would put a hedge of protection around their actions. Lord, that we would remain faithful. Lord, when, when we, we do mess up and when we are temporarily wooed away, Lord, that we would be quick to return to you, that we would be quick to ask for forgiveness, and that we would be quick to use the sufficient word to then transform us. Lord, if there's one here today who is yet to accept Christ, would you help them to see, though it might be difficult to see, it might not be an easy thing to see, but Lord, would you help them to see their hopelessness apart from Christ? Would you help them to see the sufficiency of the gospel, that God's, God's Savior is enough to have their sins washed away? And Lord, would you help them also to see that what they need to do is accept Christ? Lord, whatever is needful for the hour, whatever is needful in, in hearts, I pray that you would minister your sufficient word and that you would change us and transform us so that we might be a faithful servants of you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.